offered in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Toward the end of the gospel account of Jesus' early ministry, opposition to him began to increase and the shadows of coming darkness began to crowd menacingly closer to Jesus and his followers. By the time he entered Jerusalem for his final climactic week, his enemies circled like buzzards looking for an opportunity to swoop in for the final kill. It was doing this week that Jesus went each day to the temple And there he taught the people in the open and faced the daily threat of his foes lying in wait for any slip-up, for any reason to arrest him. Like bullies in the schoolyard, they ganged up on him and used his own words no matter how he answered. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? By whose authority do you act and do these things? Whose wife will a woman be at the resurrection if she has had seven husbands? But in each case, Jesus turned the riddle or the question and answered with a question of his own, putting his accusers on the defensive and adding greatly to their frustration. This is precisely where we have been for the past several Sundays as we have considered Jesus' various parable teachings. So today, at the end of this sad parade of legal maneuvering, one of these religious leaders approaches Jesus with one final trick question. Which commandment is the greatest? Sounds like a reasonable question, doesn't it? One that might be asked by one religious leader of another. But this is not a simple question. Nor idle conversation. It is another verbal Trojan horse with a lethal trap hidden inside an innocent exterior. If the Pharisees could get Jesus to disparage part of the law by relegating some of the scripture as being less than others, or or they could make him appear lax toward the law, or simply unable him to come up with the cogent and wise answer. Jesus could lose his appeal with the people or even better, commit blasphemy and give his enemies cause to bring him to Pilate for the death sentence. There were hundreds of commandments in the book of Moses, not just the ten written in stone which he received on Mount Sinai. And in addition to these, there were hundreds more interpretations and additions to the law accrued over the centuries by the teachers and guardians of the law. The fact is, by Jesus' time, 
the whole system had become quite complicated, so much so that ordinary lay people simply could not keep up with all of the intricacies and regulations. Sort of reminds us of our need for CPAs to keep up with the ever-changing IRS regulations or our current day need to go to professional mechanics to repair our increasingly complex computerized automobiles. You just can't leave these matters to amateurs or to shade tree mechanics anymore. In similar fashion, the Pharisees rose in prominence as the official interpreters and protectors of the law. The last thing professionals would want would be a simplification of the law to the point that most ordinary people could understand it, while the very complexity of the law was their job security. So notice the answer that Jesus gives. He does not express an opinion or an idea, but he goes directly to the Mosaic law itself and quotes the most basic and foundational scripture in all of Judaism. Found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where it declares... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. These words were the most familiar words in all of the Torah. Words known to every Jewish man, woman, and child. Words taught by every parent to their children and to their children's children. Known as the Shema, these words were recited by every faithful Jew when they awakened each morning and every time they gathered to worship. These are the very words engraved on the doorposts of their homes and written on the tiny scrolls encased in the phylacteries that they wore around their arms and across their chest and around their heads. These are the words that are most familiar to every Jewish person. So it would not be too great a stretch to call this the greatest and most basic of the commandments. But then... Jesus makes an unexpected turn and he adds a second commandment citing as his authority the book of Leviticus chapter 19 verse 8 where it simply states you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus makes an unexpected turn by saying that there is not just one great commandment, there is, there is 
actually two. It was like expecting a child and discovering you're having twins. Or expecting to hear music and being surprised with surround sound stereo instead. Needless to say, it was not the answer the Pharisees expected. Then Jesus boldly announced that on these two commandments, all the other commandments and the laws and the words of the prophets all hang together as if on twin hinges upon which the entire door of Scripture swings, Jesus identifies these two dimensions of covenant relationship, love of God and love of neighbor, and declares them to be the foundation upon which all of the other Scriptures are built and to which all other scripture offers interpretation and elaboration. When you think about it, this summary even captures the essence of the Ten Commandments. You see, the first four of these commandments relate to God. No idols, no other gods, no profaning God's name, Obeying the Sabbath. And the next six relate to how we love our neighbor. Honor our parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. And do not covet. Sounds simple, doesn't it? And it is, in a way. Loving God loving our neighbor. The whole thrust of our faith comes down to these two dimensions of covenantal relationship. They are the cross-shaped trajectories of love, one vertical, raising our attention to God, and the other horizontal, reaching out to our neighbor. And notice, we're not given the choice of which of these two commandments we might obey. For there is no love of God if you do not love your neighbor. And loving God is not enough if if it is not tied to one supreme love of God and our neighbor. But of course we get crossed up trying to figure out how to live out this simple twin dimension of love. We are prone to elevate the created over the creator or to elevate our own desires and plans to divine importance. And likewise we are tempted to reduce the reach of our love for others based on how easy it is to love them to reduce the size of our neighborhood so that it only includes the neighbors we like, neighbors who are more like us. But Jesus will have nothing of it. The crossing of these two great loves must always stretch us past our comfort zones and challenge us 
to reach and to care beyond our easy theological systems, our convenient economic systems, and our closed circle of friends. What would it mean if we could love our neighbor like ourselves? Perhaps this call for us to have a healthy, would, uh, would be a call for us to have a healthier self-love also, since this is not only a command, but is a prediction. In fact, we probably will love others in similar ways to how we love and accept ourselves. The thief thinks that everyone else is a thief. And similarly, the person who has come to see themselves as beloved in the eyes and heart of God is more likely to see the same potential in everyone else. So let us resolve to love God with every fiber of our heart and soul and mind and to love our neighbor in a global village where the neighborhood includes the entire world, past, present, and future.